Our scripture reading today will be Matthew 12, verses 1 to 8. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you, the one greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words meant, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not condemn the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Amen. Well, good morning, church. God is good? And all the time? Amen. It's certainly good to be here today. If you're visiting with us, we hope you can stay around and uh, definitely stay with us for our fellowship potluck to follow. It will be a, a good time. Um, i got a couple things put on the horizon before we get going here. One of which is the Man Night. Uh, that's what it's called. I didn't label it. It was labeled uh, Man Night. It happens on the 23rd, next Saturday. Um, I believe it's from 3 o'clock to 6 o'clock. If you are going... Uh, please come and be at the church building at 2.30. I'm going to try to uh, carpool over there. I think we have about 20 guys going, and uh, he doesn't have room for 20 vehicles. So uh, if you can come over here, um, just bring all your weapons and your meats and everything else that are going to be involved. Put it in the van, and let's hope we don't get pulled over on the way to, uh, uh, to Man Night, because it'll look like we're a militia or something. Uh, good times to come. So uh, Man Night's coming up on the 23rd. Another thing to put on your radar is April 19th. April 19th, uh, we're going to be having a Good Friday service over at Good Shepherd Baptist. That's Good Friday service at Good Shepherd Baptist at 6.30. Uh, uh, raise your hand if you've ever been to a Good Friday service before. All right, so some of us. It's not hasn't been typical for uh, uh, my particular spiritual rhythms, but uh, I went to a couple in California um, at the New Vintage Church in San Diego, and I find that it is a, a very meaningful time. Of course, Good Friday is all about focusing on uh, the atonement, uh, focusing on the sacrifice that God has made. Um, and then, of course, it's followed that Sunday by Easter Sunday, where we focus on the resurrection. So I find it's a very meaningful moment. It's a good time to... Uh, to be with your uh, fellow follower of Christ here in Amherst and focus on the most important thing, as Mike uh, pointed out this morning. Uh, behind it all is the atonement. And, um, and then that Sunday, we'll, of course, all be here together and we'll be focusing on the resurrection. So uh, Mar uh, March 23rd and also March or April 19th. Um, make sure those are on your calendar. So as you can see, we are... Um, in a series of lessons called Living God's Love, an Invitation to Christian Spirituality. Uh, that's not just the title of our lesson. It's also the title of the book that we've been kind of marching through and looking at over the past few weeks. Um, and the reason we're looking at this book and the reason we're looking at this series is because uh, this is a rebuilding year. Uh, 2019 is all about regaining momentum. And part of that means learning to make disciples. 
Um, we want to learn a way, not the way, but a way to make disciples. And, and that's where this book comes in. This book is really good at um, sort of making disciples and focusing on um, the discipleship. It's sort of a discipleship 101 um, because it really introduces Christianity to those uh, who we might consider are outsiders, those on the outside of Christianity looking in. Um, it won't work for everyone, right? Um, this book isn't going to cover every possible scenario uh, or person that you come across, but I think it's a really good sort of foundational text uh, to help people learn how to make disciples. Um, it does it very well because it does, it reminds us of three things. Number one, that Christianity and other religions are totally different. Christianity and other religions are totally different. Um, other religions practice, are, are, are essentially practicing religion. Uh, their idea is you follow rules and laws and steps and technique in order to either appease the God or find or discover the God within. Christianity doesn't work that way. Christianity is all about God coming after us. Um, it is the mysterious process of God at work in us and not the other way around. Uh, the second thing it does is it reminds us that we can have a relationship with God. A relationship with the God of the universe is possible because he is initiating God. He is the God of invitation. He's a God with a story. And just like anyone we have a relationship with, getting to know their story is essential to getting to know who they are. And so our God has a story and guess what? You and I we're a part of it. Uh, thankfully, God loves the villain in the story because that's the part we play. God comes after us, redeems us, and brings us back into relationship with him. And, of course, that relationship grows to the extent that we commit ourselves to him. Right? Uh, every relationship, that, that's kind of how it works. To the extent that we are committing ourselves to the relationship is the extent by which the relationship grows. And in that particular lesson, of course, we looked at baptism and how it commits us to the God who's already committed himself to us. Now, uh, after the first three lessons, we basically uh, established the fact that we could have a relationship. The second or the last part of the book is really all about um, basically practices that are connected to a committed relationship. Practices of a committed relationship. Up first was communication, right? We need to learn how to listen to our beloved, and we need to know what it means for us to speak to him. That was the last two lessons that we looked at. It's essentially about communication. Um, we need to learn how to hear God, and we need to spend some time thinking about God hearing us in prayer. Well, this week, it was all about uh, looking at spending time with God. How many of you guys read the chapter this week? Awesome, 100%. Um, <laughs> I won't tell you what 100% means, but uh, right? Uh, this week, this chapter was all about spending time with God. And I'll be honest with you, my spiritual ADHD got the best of me. There was a tendency for me to think, okay, this is a good chapter, spending time with God, but let's jump over to uh, some technique. Let's, look at, let's go to another chapter where it talks about fasting or prayer or something else where I can get my hands around it, right? Spending time with God. What does that mean? And, of course, the author begins by saying spending time with God is sort of like, you know, those relationships, that you see sometimes in the community, where a husband and wife, they're not talking to each other, and it's not because they're angry. <laughs> uh, they're not talking to each other, they're just spending time together. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever seen that? Where um, a, a, a deep relationship, someone comes in, a husband and a wife, and they just sit next to each other, they enjoy their coffee. <clears throat> and they're not just not talking to each other because 
they're upset. They just enjoy one another's presence. Well, I'll be honest with you, when I read that chapter, I was thinking, okay, well, what do I need to do? All right, give me a task. All right, give me, a, give me an object to go and, and, or a task to go and do. Because what does it mean to just spend time with our beloved? What does it mean to just spend time with God? Of course, it gave us some ideas. It talked about uh, seeking God's constant presence uh, in silence, right? How many of you guys enjoy silence? All right, most of the parents. Um, how many of you guys actually seek silence? Uh, how many of you guys have to sleep with the TV on and the fan on and everything else on? Yeah, right? Silence is either comfortable or uncomfortable for us, right? Contemplative uh, or contemplative prayer um, was, was another practice that it talked about, about this idea of, of, of being in prayer with God uh, in an intentional, unintentional way. Uh, seeking God's constant uh, pr- uh, presence in our life. Um, you know, the Bible even says pray without what? Ceasing. How many of us pray without ceasing? Right? What does it look like to pray without ceasing? To have this running dialogue with God. It, it, it offered up the, the practice there of, of breath prayer where we breathe in uh, Jesus, Son of David, and breathe out, have mercy on me, sinner. I, I love that practice. I spend time in that particular one. And, of course, then it talks about reflecting on God's presence. And I'll be honest with you, this is where most people uh, spend a lot of time. When they think about the presence of God, they often sit down and reflect upon their week, their day, uh, the last moments they went through. And because sometimes it's easier to see God in the rearview mirror than he is the windshield, right? Sometimes easier to see where God has been in the past rather than looking for God in the present. So I, I think this chapter was really, really good. But again, my tendency was to come to this and say, resting, spending time with our beloved, blah, 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 blah. What does that mean? Well... Believe it or not, it means Sabbath. They could, have, they could have just wrote the word Sabbath on this chapter because that's what Sabbath is all about. First and foremost, Sabbath is spending time with God. And that's not just my estimation of it. That was Jesus' estimation of it. Listen to what he said here. He said, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions uh, <clears throat> ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on the Sabbath uh, duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I-, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would have not com- condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of what? The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, right? This is a fascinating text. And it really opens up uh, a number of important discussions about hermeneutics, about understanding God and His Old Testament will, His New Testament will. One of the things that it opens up is the idea that there are ceremonial laws that throughout the story of Israel and actually just in normal application are set aside. Are altered or bypassed or or the heart of the law is seen and followed through. Now, be be sure that you when you read Jesus and his remarks about the Sabbath, Jesus was pro Sabbath. He was a faithful Jew, 
And, and we have this tendency sometimes to, to, to look at the Sabbath laws and the stories about the legalists that responded and think, oh, there goes the Sabbath. Those guys are a bunch of goobers, right? No, 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 no. Jesus is very pro-Sabbath. And, and his way of responding to the Sabbath here wasn't to say, hey, don't worry about it. That's just a stupid rule in the past. What he begins to reveal to us is that there was a heart to the ceremonial law of God. And when the heart of the ceremonial law of God was fulfilled, then the law was fulfilled. Let me see if I can illustrate this more. Right? At no time does God ever say or relax the moral law of God. He never says, okay, I see you're tired and hungry, you're hangry, you're on the, you're on the freeway, there's people, okay, just this one time you can curse at them and hit them with a rock. Right? And no time does he say, okay, you can start stealing in line. And, no, he never relaxes the moral law, right? But here he says, you know, this Sabbath rule had a heart to it. It has a fulfillment to it. And what was that fulfillment? It was him. He says it two places. He says, don't you know there's something greater than the temple here? Who is he referring to? Himself. By the way, can you imagine the weight of those words to the Pharisees? There's something greater than the temple. Those are fighting words in Israel. Because the temple is where your God is at. When Jesus says there's something greater than the temple, he says, don't you know, we're fulfilling the Sabbath because you are with me. He says it again. He says, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. You know, I always go to this text and I always think, well, because he's the rule giver, he can let it slide when he wants to. That's not his point. He's pro-Sabbath. What he's saying is, is because they're with me, they're fulfilling the purpose of Sabbath. The purpose of Sabbath is to find rest with our God. The purpose of Sabbath, number two, um, is, is to find rest with God. Listen, listen to this and we'll move on. Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find what? Rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Can I just say unequivocally, Jesus is what the Sabbath was all about. Finding rest in the presence of our God. But that also means some other things. Number one, or number two rather, it says Sabbath is, is resting in a certain way. It's resting in God's good work. So not only was Jesus pro-Sabbath, but God was pro-Sabbath. Did you know that? God was really, 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 really into Sabbath. Because the Sabbath was all about God. Listen to what he says when he institutes it here uh, for Israel and his people. This is in Exodus um, 31, 12 to 17. Then the Lord God said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, you must observe my Sabbaths. This will be a sign between me and you for the generations to come. So you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. That is important because as Israel will go, they begin to think it is the law that makes them 
holy. They begin to think it is their efforts in life that make them holy. They begin to think it is their tradition and their religion and themselves as people who make them holy. The Sabbath, first and foremost, was all about reminding Israel, I am the God who makes you holy. We were talking about that in Bible class today. How, how they go into a land that's not their own. And all this language in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Joshua, is reminding them that this is connected to God's purpose. This is God, connected to God's promise. This is connected to God's efforts. Right? This is why Caleb chooses a land with the giants. Because he knows God is with them. Because God's doing the heavy lifting. Because it is God who is making them holy. Observe the Sabbath because it is holy to you. Anyone who desecrates it is to be put to what? How come no one said that one? That was interesting. (laughs) Right? Oh, Matt, Matt, we got one. One. Let's all read that together, right? Observe the Sabbath because it is holy. Anyone who desecrates it is to be put to what? Ouch. Can I tell you God's pro-Sabbath? Jesus is pro-Sabbath. For six days the work is done, but the seventh day is a day of Sabbath. Um, rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does, not, who does any work on the Sabbath day is to be put to death. The Israelites are to observe the Sabbath, celebrating it for the generations to come as a lasting covenant. It will be a sign between me and the Israelites forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was Refresh. Now, it's fascinating when you get to that end passage, right? He's essentially saying what he did before, that God is all about authoring their story, not the other way around. But he uses imagery from creation. And he says, don't you know this is all sort of like what God's been doing from the very beginning? And what God has been doing from the very beginning is creating the story called life. He is the author of it. And in Genesis, when you open up Genesis, uh, you see God creating. At the end of the day that he creates, what does he say? It is what? And on the sixth day, he says it as well. He says it this way. Um, Then God said, I give you every um, seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food and to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground. Everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw that what he has made and it was very what? And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Right? So this imagery is in the mind of, of God, in the mind of Moses as he's giving the, illust- or the commandment for for, for Israel to observe the Sabbath because why will it, it's to remind Israel that God is responsible for them and not the other way around. And he says, don't you remember, even at the beginning of time, this is how the story began. God started by creating you guys, your ancestors. He, he's the author of life. And for God to have rested, and I think the text in the NIV says refreshed. How many of you guys actually think God was tired? He wasn't tired. The God of the universe isn't a man that he should need some rest. He didn't need electrolytes. His resting... Now, now, now I think we have seen this. How many of you guys have ever built something from Ikea? Anybody? All right. How many have ever been successful at it? <laughs> Less, right? Um, 
for some reason, Ikea, I cannot put Ikea stuff together right. I always end up messing up. Partly because a lot of the stuff I buy there is real cheap. There's some good stuff there, but I don't buy the good stuff. I buy the cheap stuff. And, uh, and so I'll crank something down too hard, and it cranks it over and it breaks it. Or, or um, how many of you guys know, you know the little, uh, if, you, if you buy like the, the shelfing with the holes in it, and then there's that really thin wood piece that goes on the back? That's really important. Like, I thought, well, who cares about that? We'll just sit it against the wall. No one can see the back anyways, right? Um, if you do that, you're going to have the leaning tower of, sh- of shelves, right? Because that back piece holds it. So I'm always messing up, right? So every once in a while, I'll get it right. And I sit back, and I think, and that is good, <laughs> right? <laughs> I did it. That's good, right? Or have you, uh, I know Melissa, when, when she would make her, uh, her wedding cakes, uh, she puts a lot of work and effort and time into these decorating. And sometimes I'd catch her. She'd been there. She'd be like, uh, she'd be observing her work like, oh, that's good, you know? <laughs> That's good, right? This is, this, you know, when God says he's resting, he's not saying, whoo, man, that was hard work. He's saying, now that's what I'm talking about. That is good. Now think about that. What is God saying? You, me, this whole thing called life, in its original form before we bent the, we bent the hardware and everything was broken, he says, that's good. That's some good Yahweh work. And Israel, that's what they're to be doing. Resting in God is, is essentially resting in the notion that we are God's good work. Mm. That's why it's so important that they understand it is God that makes them holy. Not them. Because we are God's good work and that's important to know that is so so important to know because I'll be honest with you our relationship with work gets us in trouble our relationship to work gets us in trouble it got Israel in trouble Uh, if we continue on in the Old Testament uh, as you continue on in the Old Testament studying you begin to realize that even though, even though Israel pays homage to the idea that God is their God and has done some great things for them, it's not very long before they begin to think it's a because of themselves. It's not very long before they begin to, to say, you know what, uh, we're holy and righteous and winning because we have all of these, all of these soldiers and all of this technique and all of these uh, opportunities. And it's all because of us. They, their, their efforts, their, their rewards, their celebrations became their downfall because they begin to think, they were responsible for it. And to be honest with you, that's the same issue we have today. Uh, I know so, but let, let's, let's listen to a song that I think does a good job of talking about that. How many of you guys have uh, ever heard Casting Crown? All right, Casting Crown is one of my favorite worship songs, uh, or bands rather, and one of the reasons they are is because they keep it real. They keep it real. And this is one of the times uh, they kept it real.
That's one of my favorite songs. I think it does a great job of introducing the notion that it's not too far from us as spiritual Israel to fall victim to the same thing they did. To begin very quickly in response to the way life is, the way that we uh, focus on spirituality, to turn Christianity back into religion, and to begin to build our own kingdom instead of resting in the kingdom of God. Beginning to build our own story instead of seeing ourselves in the story of God. That's why Sabbath is so important. Sabbath is, is us spending time in the presence of God, number one. Number two, it's, it's us resting in God's good work, which is us. And finally, Sabbath is resting from our good works. We have a problem with work. People have a problem with work. Um, and can I say, even though I've not been here very long, <laughs> you'll have to forgive me. Um, the Northeast has a problem with work. Work has become something more than a means to an end. And um, let me just unpack about four different things I think are so very important when it comes to that. And it gets in the way of us resting with God. Um, number one, job security. When's the last time you've heard of it? Job insecurity is the norm. I, I've, I've spent enough time among you to know many of your stories, especially in industry and in manufacturing. Um, there's very few of you, if any, who had the same job the whole time. You, most of you have been laid off and had to go back to work. Laid off and go back to work. It was the same way in, uh, in Palmdale, where I grew up. Uh, in in uh, aerospace, it's all contract basis. You lose a contract, you lose work. Or when the contract's finished, you lose work. Uh, today, there's a great deal of insecurity when it comes to work. Are we going to have enough jobs? Are there going to be the type of jobs that can actually uh, support a family and actually support a livelihood? Um, it, we, we live in a society filled with insecurity when it comes to work. Number two, our demands are greater than ever. Uh, 30 years ago, the people at the top of the company would make about... Ten times, on average, the people coming in at the, the basement floor. Now, guess what the ratio is? People at the top of the companies are making 100 to 200 times the amount of money people who are coming in off the street are making. With that extra income comes extra responsibility. If you're going to be paid 100 to 200 times what, what the guy on the street comes off the street pays, you're going to be working, bub. A lot. There's going to be a great expectation of you working, of orienting your life around your work. Oh, no, by the way, when that happens, when, when the people on top are making 100 to 200 times the people on the bottom, guess what the people on the bottom have to do? They have to get one or two or three jobs to even make it. So guess what? The people on the bottom are working just as hard as the people on the top. The demand is up. And then there's this beautiful thing called technology that just has made our lives so much better. Amen? Not only did technology fail to save us like it, everyone thought it was going to save us, it, it made us more lethal. We have the capacity to kill more of us at a single moment than we ever have in history. It has created more insecurity than it ever has done anything else. And on top of that, guess what? We can work absolutely anywhere. 
You can work on the subway. You can work in the elevator. You can work walking down the street on your phone. You can work at the coffee shop. You can work at this office. You can work at home. You can work when your family's around. You can work anywhere. And because of that, we work everywhere. Technology has created pathways to work. And security in work. We're demand, far more demands than we ever had before. Technology means we work everywhere. And then something happened when we moved from sort of the family economy into an industrialized society. One of the things we lost is, or misplaced, or began to rearrange is where we found significance. Right, before industrialization, the significance, a person found their value, significance, and meaning in the family. As a father, as a mother, as a, as a patriarch, as a matriarch, as a son and daughter, there, was role, there were roles, they were clear, they were um, in the context of relationship, and so they were much better place to find them. But after industrialization, when we moved from the family and the family farm and the family uh, context into um, the nuclear family and the industrialization, now you're a nobody until you have a great job. You orient your whole life around trying to get a job. What are you going to become becomes all important. And so now our meaning and identity and value is no longer set within the context which is reachable within the family. Now it's if you're going to be a doctor and lawyer and such. I think that was the song, right? Don't let me grow up to be a cowboy, but a doctor and lawyer and such. And now we strive for meaning and identity and all those things in our work. I think Travis Tritt says, I'm going to be somebody someday. I mean, think about that phrase. Because I'm not there yet, I'm a nobody. I'm going to be a somebody someday. One of these days, I'm going to break these chains. Why did Rocky Balboa work so hard, run up the steps, to prove he wasn't a failure, prove he was something? Work has become an evil to us. And I would, I would suggest to you, this is what's behind the majority of the junk that we see in the Northeast. You realize that, um, you know, every time you turn on television, they're talking about the opioid crisis. Have you noticed that? Every other news broadcast, the opioid crisis, uh, this and that, and opioid crisis. And of course, uh, they're blaming doctors, which I thought was interesting. Because the majority of the doctors that I have been have gone to um, weren't like, hey, you got a foot problem? Here's an opioid. I mean, maybe they are, uh, maybe they are some out there that just give it away like candy. Uh, but to be honest with you, I've never met one. And besides, it's not doctors who are behind the opioid crisis. You know what's behind the opioid crisis? The Northeast lost their God. The working class lost work. And when you lose your God, you lose your hope. And when you lose your hope, you either find another God or you struggle to cope. Work was our God. And now for the last, what, from ever since 1970s to the present, because work has gone away, the working class has been basically disheveled and besides themselves and trying to reinvent themselves and trying to discover who they are and what they're about. And a lot of them aren't making the journey. 
They're falling victim to hopelessness. See, that's what's behind the opioid crisis. Not just that we're addicted to things. Not just because doctors are giving away like candy. It's hopelessness. That's what's lying behind it all. Why? Because work has become our God. And I've said this from the very beginning, and I'll say it again. If you treat anything as God that isn't God, two things are going to happen. You are either going to kill it, or it is going to kill you. Because no one can be God except God. And when you make work God, or if you make your family your God, if you make your, uh, your hobbies your God, you'll either kill it or it will kill you. We need rest from that. Amen? We need rest from the God of work. And we find rest for our souls. So what does that, what does that mean, rest for our souls? i tell you what it means. It means you're no longer trying to prove yourself to anyone. Wouldn't it be cool? Wouldn't it be awesome to just be one of those people who weren't trying to prove themselves to anyone. Now, I, I, have you ever come across a, some, a person like that? Every once in a while, you come across a person, I remember growing up, even in the youth group, and you come across a person who was just as weird as they could be, right? And I always thought, well, wow, why is this kid so weird? Um, I remember this one kid, he was, he was kind of a heavy set kid, um, and we'd go to the beach in California. Um, we do that mixed swimming thing y'all don't do out here. And um, we would go to the beach, <laughs> and, uh, and this kid, he was huge, but he took his shirt off, and he would just go out and play like no big deal. He was completely comfortable with himself. He wasn't trying to prove himself to anyone. He wasn't trying to gain approval for anything. And I remember thinking at the time, thinking on one hand, I'm thinking, that kid's weird. <laughs> and then the second thing I thought, but I kind of like him. I kind of like that. Why? That'd be awesome. Can you imagine waking up, not trying to prove anything? You know where you get that? When you're resting in in God's good work. When you discover you and all of your craziness and all of our brokenness, you are God's good work. That's the rest we get. We get to say, okay, I don't care. I don't care about all these things that other people are caring about. I'm not trying to approve, find approval. I'm not trying to make you happy. I'm not trying to make you smile. I'm not trying to get a bigger 401k. I'm not trying to, to make my way up the ladder anymore. I'm just here in the presence of God. I'm just resting with my Lord. How many of y'all want that? Let's all stand up. We're going to do a communal practice today of just resting with the Lord, right? It's going to get weird. No, I'm just kidding. Um, he's like, as if we expected anything else. Um, this next song, um, can you get the lights in the back? Right, thank you. Um, this next song, I want you to do something. I want you to, A, I want you to definitely listen to the lyrics. Because this is one of the songs, one of the closest songs that I have heard that really touches in on this notion of Sabbath. That really connects with the idea of 
resting as God, God's good work. And what I want you to do, if you know the song, I want you to sing it, but I don't want you to sing it first. I want you to just listen, and I want you to take it in. Right? I want everyone to kind of do this. Everyone take their arms and kind of shake them out. Right? This isn't the spirit, so don't get worried. <laughs> right? Now just take a big cleansing breath. And let it out. And another one. Now I want you to pause here. You can, put, you can keep your eyes closed for a second. And I want you just to pay attention to your breathing. Just listen for your breathing. Just focus on your breathing. And then I'm going to have the guys. I'm going to play this, this song. About three quarters of the way through this song. If you want to sing it, go right ahead.
Let's pray. Father, we want to say we believe. We believe what you say about us. We believe we are your very good work. God, help us to remove the idols of our life. Help us to put everything in the proper alignment. God, help us to move. If work is our God this this morning, help us to move that in our life this morning. If our family is our God this morning, help us to put that in its proper place. God, help us to put you first. And hear you say over our lives, we are your good work. Help our souls to rest deeply, Father. The sort of soul rest that that allows us to be rejuvenated. The sort of soul rest that allows us to let go of the expectations of others. That allows us to only seek your voice. And to say as the song did, now the only thing that matters is everything you say about us. May that be true of us today. May it be true in the hard times and the easy times. God, may it be true of those moments where we find it easy to forget. May it be true even as we fellowship today around corned beef and green food. Father, may you be on our minds and our hearts. May we be your good work. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and bring you peace. Be blessed this week.